good it is. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. Chap uh, Acts, chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. If you are visiting us this morning and uh, don't have a Bible or did not bring your Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles provided in the pew in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 948. We encourage you to find uh, this passage open it because everything we will do this morning will come from this book, the Scripture. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you that the words of the song we have sung, the third stanza is, everything actually in it is very powerful. It is one of the songs we encourage you to memorize. This year it's part of the ten songs that we encourage our congregation to memorize. But the third stanza, oh how good it is to embrace his command. Which command? Which command? To prefer one another. Forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we shall share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Oh, how good it is. Hope you found your way to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our gracious Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that transforms us and how this gospel transforms us to prefer one another over ourselves and to forgive one another and to live in unity and belong to one another. We pray that this morning, this truth that we have heard, it would sound again into our ears. I pray that you would lead me to speak your truth, your words, and use this for our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, a few um, verses we read this morning, these very few verses, very few for the book of Acts. Uh, mostly we have read longer passages. But these, this, these few verses are actually a summary of the life of the church in the early ages, in the, in the early church. This is actually the third summary that Luke gives us, the third summary of the life of the early church. The first summary, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to chapter 1, uh, verse 14, just one verse. Um, all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That was the first summary. The second summary is chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Turn there, please, and here's what we read there. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was the second summary. And now we get to the third summary of the life of the church. And you will notice that some of the themes are repeating themselves. But this recap is given to us again for the third time to remind us what the life of the early church was like. But in this particular summary, the focus falls on the generosity of the believers. They're willing to share their material resources 
with the needy people of their congregation. Luke actually uses a phrase that is found nowhere else in the, in the New Testament. In verse 34, Luke says, there is not a needy person among them. Now that's an interesting phrase. Do you know where it comes from? It doesn't come from Marx or, uh, or socialism or communism. It comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 4, Moses, inspired by, by God's Spirit, told the Israelites how they should live once they arrive in the Promised Land. And God promised them that if, if they listen and obey to God's commandments, here's what God will do. There will be no poor people among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Did you hear that promise? There will be no poor among you. So when Luke tells us that there is not a needy person among them, Luke may have hinted at the reality that what the early church experienced was an echo of what God promised I would like to look this morning at the DNA of a generous church. The DNA of a generous church. Four factors of a generous church. The first one I'd like to point your attention to is a deep unity. A deep unity. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's the first characteristic. This is the, the first thing that Luke, Luke brings out to our attention once again. Their unity. Now, it was a unity of the full number of those who believed. Not just of some, but of those who believed. Of all of them. The full number. Friends, to believe in the news of the gospel. The good news that Christ brought to us. And to respond to that news brings us together as we have never been before. To believe the gospel and to respond to it brings us together as we have never been before. A new attachment is created. A new bond. Not just between my heart and God, but between my heart and the hearts of those who also believe in God. The response of the gospel creates this unity. But let's look a bit further at how this unity is manifested. Luke has already told us that in the previous summaries that their unity was manifested visibly by their gathering together. They were meeting together regularly. And not just once a week, but also living life together throughout the week. Living the new life of faith together with other believers. Linking arms with them. This means that, friends, our presence together, when we gather here every Sunday morning, our presence together is a visible sign of our unity. It is a visible sign of what the gospel produces in us. It's a very tangible measure of our unity. Friends, you cannot claim to cherish our unity in the gospel if you are willing to make a habit of not showing up. In some ways, the very, a very tangible measure, if you will, of how our gospel works in us is our unity in the act of gathering together. But in the book of Acts, this unity was definitely not limited simply to the act of gathering together. Their unity went, went way, way deeper. It was a unity that was formed deeper 
where the eyes cannot see. It was a unity formed in heart and soul. What does it mean to be of one heart and soul? What does it mean to be of one heart and one soul? Do you know where in the Bible the phrase heart and soul show up as a combination for the first time? It's in Deuteronomy. Again, you have to read Deuteronomy to understand the New Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's part of the Shema, the, the major well-known confession of the, of, of, of the Israelites. Uh, the Shema said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the first place in the Old Testament where heart and soul show up in a combination together. In other words, the unity of the early church happened in the very place where their love for God was supposed to be rooted, at the core of their beings. Now Luke tells us that at the core of their beings, in the depths of their hearts and soul, something profound has happened. A unity was being shaped and formed. A unity with those who believed the same gospel. A unity with those who had the same love for God. Friend, I wonder if you realize how crucial and how critical this unity is for those who claim to respond to this gospel. When you talk to uh, people about church, Perhaps you have an opportunity to invite someone to church. Do you ever mention how our gatherings and our unity together is an essential part of what the gospel produces in us? Do you actually boast and, and, and brag and rejoice in the kind of unity that the gospel ha creates in us so that when we gather every Sunday morning, it's not just a habit. It's more than a habit. It's not just a religious to-do list on your list of things to do. No, when we gather every Sunday morning, it's because the gospel creates a unity in us. A unity that would not be there unless we actually embrace this gospel. Friends, apart from this gospel, we could never be one in heart and soul. Do you realize that? Apart from this gospel, we could never be one in heart and soul. People can be united around a cause. People can be united around a purpose. People can be united around certain interests. People can be united around certain events. Um, the other night, I got a haircut and I tried to engage with the lady who was giving me a haircut and and uh, I commented that her name comes from the Bible. By the way, that's a really neat way to, when you meet somebody, what's your name, what's your name? And they say a name that is, is connected to the Bible. That is one segue I, I use. Oh, your name comes from the Bible. Did you know that? Well, she did know, as she was a believer. Um, but she said that when she started meeting, going to church, or when she's going to church, she goes to a particular church that, um, so why do you go there? What got you there? Oh. Every Sunday, it's like going to a concert. I love it. And they talk about Jesus too. It's great. Now, what was the point behind her going? What was she bragging about? The event. That's what, that's what drawn, her, drawn her in week in, week out. People, friends, People can be drawn together for various reasons. But the unity that the gospel creates, it's a unity that happens in the heart and soul. And our act of gathering together is not just because we have the same cause or purpose or certain interests or events. And I'm not saying there's it's wrong to have events. Don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is our act of getting together and meeting together should be based on a unity that happens deep inside, a unity that happens in the heart, a unity that happens in the soul. Friend, I wonder if 
when you speak about church and the unity we have together, I wonder if you highlight the utterly unique nature of our unity, a unity that takes place only where the gospel can penetrate and change, a unity that takes place in our hearts and souls. Or when we live out this life together as, as one body, in, as one heart and soul, this is not just a superficial unity. It's not just a Sunday unity, but a unity in which we have the courage to be transparent with one another, open with one another, a unity in which we are not hiding our private lives, but seeking to live in openness, openness for others to know our weaknesses and our needs. You know what? So it's, it's how amazing that Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, we'll get tagged by the Lord for failing to live in openness and unity and transparency. Their unity with the body was only superficial. It was only at the level of what meets the eye or what impresses the others. Because they were united in their generosity. So they thought. But it was only an outward unity. It was only a unity that was, was very superficial. Why do we see this kind of deep unity in Acts? This unity of one heart and soul? Because this unity happens at the level of the heart. Because that's where the gospel does its work. A second factor of, of, their, of a DNA of a generous church is not only a deep unity, the second factor is a true sense of belonging, a true sense of belonging. The unity of these believers was not just a concept, it was not just a feeling. It was not even just a, um, a, a spiritual reality. It was a unity that actually led to actions. And the actions were not just their gathering together every Sunday morning, but concrete actions of generosity. Look at verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Friends, the generosity we see here is not the kind of general generosity for philanthropic causes where you write a check and send it to some organization um, in Africa or some other country or even in, in our own country and uh, you just contribute and help them out. I mean, that is one kind of being generous. The generosity we see here in Acts 4 is a generosity that was an outflow of their unity and it was a generosity which manifested among themselves so that together they had all things in common. This generosity gets a bit of attention in our passage. In verse 34, we are told that there was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed each, each as any had need. And then Luke gives us two examples of generosity. The first one is the story of Barnabas, or the story of, of, of Joseph called Barnabas. And then the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These two examples clarify what exactly was going on in their generous giving. Barnabas was actually among those who, who did sell uh, one of his properties. And the story of Barnabas is given as a concrete example. No, we can point to a person. Look at what he did. This is not just a generalization. Yes, there are actual people who responded very generously. Now, the early believers may have remembered the words of Jesus in Luke 12, the passage we read earlier. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. So, those who had the means to do it, those who had possessions did sell from their possessions. The text does not tell us that they sold all their possessions. This is not some sort of forced generosity. This is not communism. Where you're forced to give up your stuff. Their generosity not only was not forced, it was not even commanded by the apostles. If anything, when Peter speaks to Ananias rebuking him for lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter says to Ananias, look in verse 4 of chapter 5, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, Peter said, you didn't have to sell it. You really didn't have to. 
This is not a forced generosity. And then Peter goes on and says, and after it was sold, was not all at your disposal? You didn't, you didn't have to pretend like you gave it all. It was yours. You only had to give what your heart decided to give. In other words, the generosity described in Acts 4 was not forced on anyone. It was every, nor was everyone expected to do it. Now, some of you are just saying, Thank you, Pastor, for clarifying that. I'm so glad I don't have to do this. Right? But friends, like Barnabas, some indeed sold some of their properties. Others did not. But they, also, but they, even those who did not sell them, considered them not to be their own. They made their resources available for others. This kind of attitude was present among all the believers. Look at verse, uh, look at, look at verse um, 35. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. This means that while legally speaking, some of them continued to be owners of the lands or their properties, in their hearts and minds, there was a radical change in attitude. They, they considered their possessions to be available to help the needy sisters and brothers. As we look in the other parts of, of the book of Acts, we will notice that this commitment to help the needy uh, actually became a burden. All you have to do is just flip two chapters to chapter 6 and realize, and, and ho realize that the needy widows became a burden and a cause uh, of disunity. Not because of the, of the widows themselves or their need, but because of how great the need was, the church had to figure out a way to deal with this need in a godly manner. Because dealing with it in an ungodly manner caused disunity. And that's where the apostles come and tell the church, Church, we need to appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit who will give attention to these matters so that we, the leaders of the church, can devote ourselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. That's when the office of the deacon is, is, is begun. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will feel impelled to ask for love offerings from the Gentiles um, in various places for the church of Jerusalem. In other words, even though here in Acts 4, we see extreme generosity, their resources eventually ran out. And other churches were asked to contribute to alleviate for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Friends, even though their resources eventually would run out, what is highlighted in this passage is their generous hearts that produces generous giving because they felt a sense of belonging together. So what characterizes their generosity? What are, what are the first two factors? It happened as an outflow of their unity. It happened not because it was forced or demanded upon them, but freely given as an outflow of their sense of belonging together. A third factor behind their generosity. A third factor behind their generosity. A powerful gospel proclamation. A powerful gospel proclamation. Even though unity and generosity um, are a big focus in, in this passage in the life of the church, the foundation of their new life together was the resurrection of Jesus. That's why proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus was a constant focus of these believers. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why is there unity of heart and soul among these Christians? Why is there such a generosity among these Christians? It's because they have come to know God. And know that God is gracious. They have come to know God. And know that God is gracious. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you may not know a crucial fact with, which Christians have been gripped by. And which Christians have embraced and believed. And they have come to know. Christians know that God did not have to give His Son, His only begotten Son for us. God did not have to do that. God could have enjoyed His existence 
in the cul-de-sac of his eternity. And he would have been fine. God could have closed his door on us like we close the doors of our garages and just spend the rest of the evening in our homes and don't mingle with anybody else. God could have closed his door on us and God could have been totally loving, perfect, just, good, and all of the above. God did not have to give Jesus his only son for us. But God chose to give him. God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to come to earth to die for us so that we might be saved. Saved from our wretchedness. Saved from our enslavement. Slain from our rebellion. So that whoever turns to God, believing in this great news, and turning away from their sin, they too might be saved. This is the great news of the gospel that Christians embrace. Friends, if you've never heard this news, or perhaps you've heard it many, many times, but you've never responded to it, you've never embraced it, I pray that today you would consider doing so. I pray you could you're, you're consider calling out to God to save you, to ask God to do in you that which Jesus came to accomplish, to save you from your sin. But all of this is possible because God gave. God gave His Son for us. And when Christians are awakened, when people are awakened to see truly what God has given us, when Christ becomes part of us and we become part of Him, we can never be like we were before. We can never be like we were before. When you realize that what God has done for you, your nature is changed. God changes your nature. That's why when someone claims to believe the gospel, but then you look at their life and there's no change, not the slightest indication of any change, that person may not be really born again. Their commitment to Christianity may be no different than signing up for an American Express card or a garden club card. They might have some new perks, but their nature is the same. But not so with embracing the gift of God. What God gives us changes us from the inside out. And what we see here in Acts 4 is a picture of the kind of changes the gospel produces in us. A change in how we view ourselves. A change in how we view our stuff. Such changes gives us the freedom to live in unity with other believers. To be one in heart and soul. And such change gives us a freedom to live generously towards others who are less fortunate than us. But all of this is possible because of the preaching of the gospel. I love what David Peterson says. It was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity. Not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions. And the church was not going through a capital campaign or some other fundraising campaigns for the poor. No. This generosity just happened naturally because they understood the gospel. That's why Luke, while emphasizing their unity and generosity, will come back to the ongoing priority of preaching the resurrection of Jesus. But there is another reason, a final reason, why all these things are happening to them in the book of Acts. And this is a fourth component of the DNA of a generous church. We saw their deep unity. We saw a, a true sense of belonging together. We saw the powerful gospel proclamation. Lastly, the grace of God. The grace of God. Look at verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. Even though the apostles were doing all this preaching 
about Jesus and your resurrection, even though all the believers were united in one heart, even though there's great generosity and a sense of belonging, all these were caused because great grace was upon them all. This reveals to us that Christian fellowship, dear friends, is not just a community of friends. It's not just a human endeavor. Christian fellowship is an enterprise of divine character. Christian fellowship is an enterprise of divine character. That's why in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira seek to simulate generosity without actually having a generous heart, they got sanctioned by God. Trying to put a front of unity, trying to put forward a Sunday face to being united in heart and soul, but not actually be united in the heart and actually acting against that unity privately that actually got sanctioned by God in a pretty dramatic way God was involved in this fellowship the grace of God was building this fellowship and the grace of God would not allow this kind of threats to their unity oh dear friends Christian fellowship is not just a product of human interactions, but the product of the grace of God. If we understood that, if we understood that, one of the great things we can wish to one another is the grace of God. That's why Paul, in every one of his letters, he begins with the words, grace and peace. Grace and peace. There's no better thing we can wish to one another than the grace of God. A church full of God's grace abounding in their midst. What a great aspiration. This is what I have prayed this week in preparation for my message. Lord, would you continue to abound among us your grace? Would your grace overflow among us? There would be all kinds of things happening among us that only, only the gospel can produce. No, my, no matter how much I would teach or preach or encourage, Unless the grace of God uses that to cause in us changes, nothing will do the work. It's the grace of God that does the growth. Four factors behind the generous church. A deep unity, a true sense of belonging, a powerful proclamation of the gospel, and the grace of God. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the grace of God as given to us in Jesus Christ. And we will remember that God gave. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper? And during this time of prayer, I would encourage and invite all the deacons to come forward to prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's table. Our gracious Father, it is such a joy, it's such an honor. We're humbled by the fact that you have given to us so much. You have given to us your only Son. And this morning we are reminded of, of the power of the Gospel, of what that power does in us, changing us from the inside out, helping us see ourselves differently, helping us see our, our stuff differently. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to change our hearts, transform us, and I pray that if there's someone here this morning that has not yet embraced the gospel, that has not yet asked of you to be saved, I pray that this person would give their hearts to Christ. And I pray that our own worship this morning through and around the Lord's table might be a powerful message to all of us this morning of what the gospel does in us. It brings Christ to us. So that as we partake of the Lord's body symbolically, we are reminded that Christ is in us. We pray that you prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, gave the following instructions about how we should prepare for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, Therefore, whoever eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Friends, we will have a few moments of examining ourselves in light of Scripture. Especially those of us who are members of this congregation, when we have joined this congregation, we have committed to a covenant that we committed to uphold for ourselves personally and for each other. And I would like for us, as part of the process of examining ourselves, to read this covenant together. And then we'll have a few moments of silently reflecting on it and praying prayers of personal confession to the Lord. But let's read together what we have agreed to live like and live by in light of God's Word. If you're a member of this church, we invite you to read this covenant. If you're not a member, you don't have to read it. You can just listen silently to our commitment together. Let's read this covenant. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We agree, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, and to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also agree to obey the teachings of Jesus Christ, to maintain family and private devotions, to educate our children in Christian beliefs, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful to our commitments, and exemplary in our behalf, behavior, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further agree to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and Christian courtesy in speech, and to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules given by our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover agree that should we relocate from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. This is what the members of this congregation have agreed to live by in light of God's word. Let's take a few moments of silence, examining our hearts, praying in our hearts, asking the Lord to forgive, our hearts turning away from our sins. And then I will invite Brother Paul Beeman to lead us in a prayer of confession. Dear Lord, you know each of our sins. You know our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we come before you today, that you would forgive us for the sins that we've committed, the ones that we have committed in our heart, in our mind, in our thoughts. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would uh, guide us in the days that come forward 
that we would live closer to your word and to your purpose for our lives. Lord, we thank you for your, uh, what you have done for us. We can never adequately repay you for the salvation that you've given to us free. We just pray, Lord, that, that uh, we would be able to share it with others and that your name would be glorified through our actions. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless this bread and this juice, this wine, as we share it today. We know that it represents your body, which was given for us, that we all may have salvation. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When we confess our sins to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It is with this assurance that we approach the Lord's table. We invite all of you who meet the following qualifications for partaking of the Lord's Supper to join us. All those who are active members of God's covenant community, who have been baptized, who after examining themselves in light of God's word, continue to profess repentance from sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by their words and life are invited to participate in the supper. If you have professed Christ publicly through baptism, even though you may not be a member of this church, you're welcome to join us in this participation of the Lord's Supper. We pray that this participation would be a blessing to us. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat, all of you. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what we want to do this morning. Stop. 
Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Our gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your Son, by whom you have saved us, you have rescued us, you have given us a new life, you have given us your righteousness. It is in the life of your Son that we want to live the rest of our lives here on earth until you call us home or until you return. It is in the name we pray. Amen. John, now stand and let's continue to worship the Lord with a final song of thanksgiving to God. <laughs> 